Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, my name is Carlos Pascual, Senior Vice President at IHS Market. I'm joined by Atularia, Senior Vice President at IHS Market as well, and our Chief Energy Strategist, and of course, by Dan, Dr. Daniel Jurgen. Otto and I want to welcome you to this book launch for Dr. Daniel Jurgen. Uh, we want to welcome you on behalf of Dan, on behalf of IHS Market, on behalf of Sierra Week Conversations for this presentation of the new map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Dan, congratulations for Otto and me. It's an absolute honor to be here. This is a Thank book launch, but you know, Dan, we're thrilled. And it's a book launch, Dan, but it's also a celebration. And I want to tell our community a bit about what we're celebrating. And Dan, of course, that's you. Now, I need to make a quick logistical message. We're very happy to take questions today through the Q&A function that's on your screen. But we also want to give full exposure to Dan's book. So we, we can't promise to get all of your questions now, but we will respond in writing. So let me come back to Dan. Everybody who is watching knows who Dan Jurgen is, but we rarely stop to think about the collective impact of this man's career. So let's take a moment to do that, and let's start with praise for the new map. The London Sunday Times calls the new map a wonderful book, a capacious and well-written account directed at the transformation of the global map of power and wealth that has happened in the 21st century. USA Today says, Jurgen provides an engaging survey course on the lifeblood of modern civilization, where the world has been and where it is likely headed, at a time when solid facts and recent arguments are in retreat. Daniel Jurgen rides to the rescue. And Kyrgyz Reviews simply says, required reading, another winner from the master. The praise doesn't begin to capture Dan Jurgen's graciousness and humanity as a colleague and friend. He is a person who demonstrates in his life and accomplishments relentless commitment to improving the world through understanding, through the ability to listen, and to then tell us the stories that capture the beauty and drama of a world that is always in transition. So, Dan, congratulations on the new map. Thank you very much. It's very gracious of you. And let me let me join uh, my colleagues here in welcoming everybody to this. Uh, my name is uh, Atul Arya, and I'll kick off the questioning uh, and discussion we're going to have on the book. So, Dan, I think what we first want to hear is the story behind the story. Why did you write this book? And is it correct that you wrote it longhand? Well, those are those are two different questions. Uh, so I'll take the second one first. Yes, it's true. I wrote in longhand. I've always done that. And then I, but as my handwriting deteriorates, I have to type it up pretty quickly. I think actually, Carlos, as he went through those other books, really, in a sense, this book is a continuation and it builds upon them and it builds upon the themes. But what really got me started was uh, looking at just how the logistical maps of energy were changing with the shale revolution in the United States and what was happening around the world. And then that map changed, moved from literal and cartographic 
really into a metaphor for uh, making our way through a world that has been disrupted in many different ways. So I, I think, Dan, just building on that a little bit further, um, a lot of people really ask this question, what is the new map? And what does it show us in the way that it's changed? And maybe if you could just elaborate on that a little bit further. The way it works is that the new map, what I really mean is this map of energy and geopolitics. And the two are so interconnected when you're talking about the shale revolution, whether you're talking about China's map, Russia's map, the Middle East, roadmap of the future, as I call it, and of course, climate map. So all of those are together, and it is it brings what's um, happening with nation states and their interaction in a world that is unfortunately becoming more fragmented. So Dan, let me let me start by going through each of those different maps. And let's start with the America's map, because that's kind of the beginning of the book. Uh, and of course, you know, we have to start by talking about shale revolution. So where do you think we are on the shale revolution? Is it over? What, what does your crystal ball tell you? Well, I think it's obviously shale is having a tough time now. And uh, it was having a difficult time before COVID has gotten more difficult. Uh, in the in the new map, I said that really shale is going to need a second revolution in terms of its relationship with investors. And that has been accentuated by what's happened. Uh, I think the view we have and the view that's in the book is that shale, uh, we've seen it declining. It will be probably not for another year it will start growing again. So shale will continue to be a very important part of the global market. Uh, will the U.S. get to 13 million barrels a day again? I don't think so. But it's no longer a disruptive technology as it's been uh, for the last, for the previous decade. It's now going to be a one of the building blocks, one of the foundations of the global oil market. Yeah. If I can follow up on that, Dan, quickly. Um, you know, you also write about the importance of shale, not just as oil and gas supply, but also really changing the geopolitics of, of energy. So how did that, how did that happen? Uh, the tool is very interesting because I think people sort of maybe know about the volumes. They don't think about the economic impact it's had in terms of jobs, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of over $200 billion of new investment in the United States and in new factories. And they're even less aware, I think, that it's actually become uh, an important factor in, in global affairs because it's given the United States a new dimension of influence and uh, and position that it didn't have before. The U.S. is in a very different position uh, when it, it has the flexibility to come from its current energy position of being the world's largest producer of oil and gas. Um, Dan, let's take a twist to the international side, building on what you just said. And you tell a fascinating story about the nine-dash line and the South China Sea. And it, it, in a sense, the, the conflicts that are, that you retell in history are really at the center of politics again today. What is the risk that that nine dash line in the South China Sea could become a center of conflict, um, now and, and, and hot conflict? Right. Well, it's interesting. You know, I trace back the nine dash line, which is for those who don't know, is the, is the map that China uses to demarcate 
what it says is its territory of the South China Sea, which is mostly the South China Sea. And it goes back to the 1930s, that map, when the French at the dying days of the Indo-Chinese Empire uh, claimed some islands uh, in, in, the, uh, in the South China Sea. And that led to a famous geographer in Beijing, whose uh, photo is in the book, uh, drawing a map uh, to reassert China's historic claim to it. So that map, really from 1936 to today, has become extraordinarily influential and at the center, Carlos, as you say, of uh, international contention. And uh, China insists that that's its territory. Obviously, the United States and the liberal countries don't necessarily don't agree with that. And there are these navigation patrols that go through it at the same time that China has uh, recovered 3,200 acres of, uh, of reclamation in its military positions. So I think, you know, if you look around the world, I'd say that that's a point where there have been several near collisions of U.S. and Chinese ships. And it's a place where, quote, an accident could happen. So the South China Sea is the most important trade body of water in terms of world trade. It's also right now one of the riskiest. So, Dan, let's switch gears to another uh, part of the, the book and, and where we are now. Uh, you coined this phrase sort of before Paris and after Paris. You know, Paris referring to the climate treaty. The, the thing I observe is that the emissions, which was the focus, has continued to go up uh, after the Paris three days. So what do you think has changed after you, Paris? Uh, Jewel, are you saying emissions have gone up or the focus on emissions has gone up? Well, both the focus, but actual emissions globally have also gone up. Right. right. Well, I think that tells, uh, it tells you, of course, this year they're, they're down because of the, what I call the economic dark age that came with the shutdown of economies. But, uh, I think what you're pointing to, Atul, is in fact to kind of make the transitions people are talking about is going to be more challenging when you have uh, what was an $87 trillion economy at some point will actually get back on the course to being a $100 trillion economy. But I do think, you know, you know, sometimes when you sit down and you look at a, uh, you think and you put pieces together, it became clear that there was two years in energy now before Paris. And after Paris, as you say, emissions have gone up, but at the same time, Paris and its objectives of two degrees, one and a half degrees, has really become a benchmark, not only for governments and for NGOs and activists, but also for investors and for companies. And so that's what I mean by the, the you know, after Paris is the era that we're in, post-Paris, where it's remarkable to actually have a cons- consensus 195 nations initially signing on, and that becoming over those five years since then the standard against which uh, much is now being measured. Dan, if I, I could build on that and this idea of energy transition and the public engagement and the public policy engagement around it. And generally, we've thought about transition as really more evolution than revolution. But now when we look at a world where the Union, European Union is committed to net zero emissions by 2050, we see over 70 countries that have made similar kinds of pledges. 
what are the factors that could accelerate that transition process? Is that something that's possible or are the, the transformational challenges at stake too great to have an expectation that that process can be accelerated? Well, I think directionally it's going to happen and an enormous amount of effort will go into it. I think that the economic wound of, of COVID uh, will act to some degree as a break. I know some people talk about building back better, but I think just the burden of debt and the need to deal with actually the wounds of the economy, what's happened to small businesses, for instance. Um, you know, energy transition, that wasn't much as we spoke capital a few years ago, and now it's become center. And uh, there are different wounds of it. When you look at historically, you say, well, transitions take a long time. In the book, you know, the transition would the couple began when the price of wood went up in the late and people started using coal. But I say the precise event was January 1709, uh, when the metal worker in England figured out how to use coal rather than wood to make improve the process of making iron. It took 200 years uh, for coal to become half of world energy. Now, the 18th, 19th, even 20th century, or not the 21st century, where we have these technologies, we have digitalization, all this, you know, science capabilities, real power, money, talent, that it's still, you know, to move a $87 trillion economy still seems to be quite a challenge, uh, even with all the intention uh, that's there. The world that still uses 84% of its energy comes from fossil fuels. So, you know, that's 30 years, really, um, you know, in terms of energy evolution, as you use that term, is, is a pretty short time to do So, the direction is it's happening. So, Dan, let's stay on the, the theme of energy transition for a bit longer. And, and there are, of course, a lot of questions on it from our, our audience. So, you know, one dimension of energy transition is renewable uh, building a lot of stuff. Right, you know, lots of solar and wind and EVs to require batteries. And, and uh, we have seen during COVID the supply chains have been very stressed. So how do you see this, these supply chains evolving? Could this be another trade conflict looming here? Well, I think, I think so. You know, I think that there's been a separation from looking at the supply chains and from the targets that are being made. And we have a fragmented, uh, Called fragmenting globalization that's now occurring. Uh, some here in Washington want to talk about decoupling from China. Uh, obviously, increasing stress in that relationship, and yet China is deeply embedded in the supply chains for uh, you know the new energies, um, and has you know made a big commitment to it. So I think there's critical and I think just the scale of it, you know, um, until, you know, we're working together on this new supply chains for zero net carbon study. And, you know, we were, you know, just as you know, when we were looking at these numbers last week, the scale of what would be required in wind and solar and so forth to meet the kind of targets that are there under a reasonable scenario involved building a lot of things. I think the supply chains will be a critical question when you're talking about batteries, when you're talking about uh, solar. And so I think it does get caught up in this, you know, the new map of energy. You can't separate them. 
So Dan, uh, let me just kind of follow up on this again around the, around the supply chains. And, and you mentioned we are doing this study, which will be, you know, we should look at what is going to, what is going to happen. You know, one of the critical countries in this transition is India. And you write uh, in your book, you know, you have a chapter devoted to India and you say that energy transition will have multiple dimensions in India. So could you say about what those dimensions would be? Yes, uh, as we worked in India, and it's reflected in that chapter, and uh, Minister Pradhan, as Minister of Energy, is very clear about it, that, yes, there's a big commitment to wind and solar for electricity, but there's also a very big commitment to dealing with uh, the health conditions of people in villages, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who burn wood, animal waste, uh, crop waste, and have indoor air pollution. And the World Health Organization, which, of course, is now uh, front and center, says the biggest source of uh, this biggest environmental problem today is indoor air pollution for the reasons I've said. And so India is, yes, towards renewables, but it's also moving towards a much increased uh, use of natural gas and also getting propane uh, to villages and so forth as a $60 billion program. So for India, uh Energy transition means also transition from uh, pre-modern energy, really, to commercial energy. So it's a different message. And I quote the Nigerian uh, energy minister in the book saying the same thing, that we have to deal with poverty. It's a different set of issues. We need natural gas. So that vision of energy transition is not the same vision of energy transition that you might encounter uh, in the Netherlands or in Germany. Uh, Atul, if I can go back to your previous point about supply chains, you know, as people know, many people in this call know that big oil is a term constant that's used very much. When you look to the next uh, iteration of uh, moving towards uh, lower carbon, I think it also becomes an era of big shovels. There'll be a lot of mining. Yeah. So if I can just, before we move to another topic, on energy transition, there are so many questions. And of course, you just touched on one, but the obvious one, the big oil. So, you know, we are seeing a kind of a differentiated strategy of the U.S. versus the European major oil companies. Tell us what you think, how you think about that. Is that going to remain and get bigger? Well, I, re- I was struck in the Zero Week conversation did with uh, Mike Worth, who's the CEO of Chevron. He said that, you know, never has there been as much differentiation in the strategies of the international oil companies as they are today. And one is a conscious that there is an Atlantic Ocean between Europe and, uh, and North America. And uh, you see a different approaches to it. Obviously, the European, many of the European majors now saying that they're not oil and gas companies, they're energy companies, they're going to move in that direction, make major changes in their spending and how they direct capital. Uh, the U.S. companies, different focus, certainly a focus on reducing emissions. And one of the things we've seen is actually the use of renewable energy uh, in in the upstream, in using uh, solar uh, for, for power. But I think, um, you know, different companies are adopting different strategies in this uh, post-Paris era, where the, where the pressures are different. And uh, as uh, I think was the CEO of, of Shell in our conversation, Ben Bagurni, used the phrase, in step with society. And there's a difference in you know, society between the United States and, and Europe right now. 
Dan, if we can connect um, this issue of transitions back to the world of politics, one of the things that runs as a common theme throughout your books is that transitions be, that also entail changes in power. And as we go through this energy transition now, what does it tell us about what the energy superpower of the future might look like? Well, Carlos, let me answer that in two parts. One, there's a chapter in the book called The Plague. And it's about what's happened this year. I should say, basically, you know, there's a famous saying, you don't finish a book, they take it away from you. And they took it away from me the second week of July, and I couldn't work on it anymore. But it's, I think, very current. And so in that chapter was about the, the change in the power relations. You know, for decades, it was OPEC, non-OPEC, then it was OPEC plus. I think we saw in April when the oil price was went into negative territory, it was a new world of geopolitics in terms of oil because it's the big three. It's the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, and the choices they make and how they interact in different ways that is really kind of a sort of a, a foundation of the oil uh, market today. And that reflects a change in the U.S. position is really brought forward, you know, by that very severe uh, crisis, which was a symptom of really an economic symptom of, of COVID-19. But if we look to the future, uh, you see in terms of power relations, you see that China means a couple of things from an energy transition that are important from its position. One, it reduces its dependence on imported oil. And uh, China, more than anybody else, is pushing electric cars, mindful of the growth of the automobile fleet. And it is well positioned in terms of new energies, in terms of the supply chain for solar, uh, lithium, uh, battery supply chain. So China, uh, you know, does well out of this. Countries that export oil, um, you know, demand isn't going to stop tomorrow. Demand's not going to even stop in 2050. But, um, you know, countries, you know, you see that focus on diversification. In, uh, in, the, in the Gulf countries in a way they've talked about in the past, but it's now become a more urgent thing as we see with Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia and, uh, and uh, Abu Dhabi in a way started its diversification 10 years earlier. Uh, so, and Russia is still a lot of, you know, Russia is a more diversified economy. It's the world's largest exporter of wheat. But, uh, 40, 50% of government budget comes from oil and gas. So, you know, a country like Russia, it's also a question of how does this transition happen? Uh, what's going to be the role of natural gas in, in Europe uh, 10 years from now? Uh, so those will be big questions for countries that do export uh, a lot of oil and gas and for whom it's important to their, to their overall GDP. <laughs> Just uh, another word, Dan, on the, on the Middle East. And you, you raise um, the Saudi vision 2030, Abu Dhabi um, put forward a 2030 vision even before that. And the whole idea was to use oil to transform away from dependence on oil. Does the pandemic undermine that? Well, I think it makes it more difficult. I think, Carlos, you've made a very important point, which is in order to diverse, these countries diversify from oil, you need oil revenues to finance it. And I think, you know, the thinking was maybe based on $60 oil, not on uh, $40 oil or high 30s or low 40s. And so 
COVID uh, and uh, what's happened to the oil price certainly makes uh, diversification, transition of those economies just that much more challenging. Can I ask a question here around, since we're talking hydrocarbons, uh, there is a terrific question which, which has to be addressed, which I think the readers of Prize will remember, as I do, the phrase, the hydrocarbon man. So Dan, what's what's going to happen to the hydrocarbon man? And I should I think we should say hydrocarbon men and women now, or, or hydrocarbon person. Um, uh, you know that's um that's a very uh, good question, and I think um, uh, a hydrocarbon person is um, is uh, how should we say is 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 less than it was, you know, when I wrote the prize, it was a, so many things were different. I mean, China hardly appeared in the book because it was a self-sufficient country right around until that time of publication. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, I think we'll retire that phrase. Uh, that was a phrase that I think held true, but now, um, uh, I think we have to say, uh, mixed energy mixed person. Is what we have do, uh, for the decade. Do you think they're kind of in the in the phrase of a very wise man? They don't uh, disappear; they just fade away. Well, I think uh, I think uh, Joe Biden in his campaigning uh, has, you know, he gave a speech the other day in Western Pennsylvania where a lot of people are involved in uh, shale, and he said, you know, I'm not going to ban shale. Uh, ban fracking, I repeat, I'm not going to ban it. But then he said somewhere else, you know, we'll focus on climate and oil and gas will fade away. Um, it might be a very long period out. You know, just when you look, there are 280 million cars in the United States. The average car, according to our research, stays on the road about 12 years. So those cars aren't going to disappear quickly. Dan, there are a lot of questions that are that are coming in on on this question of fuels, and the question that keeps coming up is hydrogen and the importance that it could play in the future of the energy system. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, that's um, Carlos. It's very interesting because some will remember about ten or twelve years ago, maybe even more than that, there was a hydrogen boomlet, and then it uh, it ran out of air. Uh, and then three or four years ago, if you said hydrogen, people would have said, yes, what about hydrogen? It's now become a big focus. I have one chapter on breakthrough uh, uh, energy uh, options based, and it draws upon a study that we did uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, Ernie Moniz, former energy secretary for Bill Gates Foundation, the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, uh, identifying the technologies and hydrogen, you know, has really come to the fore. I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of oil and gas companies are looking at hydrogen, larger companies, seeing that as uh, part of what will be part of their portfolio in years ahead. So I think it's taken on a, a seriousness, uh, you know, for, for heating and power uh, that it, you know, wouldn't have been there three or four years ago. And I think that reflects, uh, that reflects uh, this post-Paris uh, era that we're in. So it is one of the one of the, you know, one of the research uh, more than research one of the innovation focuses for the oil and gas industry and for others. 
And indeed, Dan, um, one of the cornerstones of transformation and transition is mobility. And you've been extraordinarily engaged in that. But can you tell us a little bit more about the story of mobility and what's going to transform it? Yeah, certainly. Well, first, I should say that we at IHS Market and working in the energy group are very fortunate to have uh, several hundred colleagues who work in automotive and transportation who do very in- deep uh, research in that. And we, you know, created this mobility service. So when I, I kind of structured around, uh, kind of an obvious title for a section, Roadmap to the Future and the, th- what I call the triad, the three kind of innovative areas that could change the picture. One, of course, is the electric car. Uh, and I have a chapter, you know, that deals with, you know, a lot of co- the topic exchange with the former chief technology officer of Tesla about what it was like to do it. And I think later today, Elon Musk will be speaking. Uh, so it's electric car. The second is ride hailing uh, and how that came about. And in part uh, because somebody was standing in the street corner in San Francisco in 2008 and couldn't get a taxi and was late for a date and had his new iPhone in his hand and said, wait, there must be a way to do that. And Uber, Lyft and so forth. Uh, and Lyft is interesting because the founder had seen these kind of uh, pickups buses in Africa and carried it back uh, to the United States. Uh, and of course, there's Didi in China where, again, somebody missed an airplane. And then the third are self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles. And uh, maybe self-driving has been pushed back. Uh, the technology somewhat by the crisis and, and access to capital. Uh, ride hailing, of course, has had a difficult time and, you know, has to wait for the crisis to be over. But if you put them all together, then I at least tried to offer kind of a startlingly different uh, vision. Uh, talked about auto tech and uh, kind of big mobility companies that would emerge that would run fleets of electric, uh, autonomous, robo, self-driving electric cars, uh, you know, obviously based on software platforms uh, and uh, very different kind of transportation mode and different kinds of companies. And so, you know, there was an example instead of big mobility, big oil, one would talk about big mobility in the future. And, you know, is that a five years away or 10 years away? But it's certainly a, a possibility. How do you think that's going to impact the oil demand? I mean, you, uh, you may have seen, you know, of course, we have our own work in IHS market, but uh, BP last week had three days of investor days. And the three scenarios that presented uh, showed the you know, decline. One of them, the next zero, very significant drop in oil demand by 2050. Which I, think, was your uh, yeah, I think it's hard to generalize while we're still in the midst of the pandemic and the degree that it's uh, upended economies. Uh, you know, gasoline demand, as we look at it, as you know, we survey 15,000 gasoline stations a week and gasoline demand in the U.S., just to take that as a proxy, because I know many of the people watching this are not in the U.S., was down 50% in April, and it's down uh, about 17 or 18% now, and it's kind of just plateaued there, reflecting the fact of where the economy is. But, you know, one big change is where people work. You know, digitalization, six years of digitalization compressed into six months. 
uh, will, you know, will the office of the future be at home? I suspect that that's part of one of the underlying thoughts of those scenarios that uh, the nature of work will be different and there'll be less commuting. The other side of it is that there are more people driving right now, at least, because there's kind of a leeriness about using public transportation. You know, you have rush hour, you know, traffic in New York City now is jammed in some of the big Chinese cities during rush hour, they're, they're jammed. So, you know, there's kind of a, a balance between the two of them. So we know there'll be big changes in the nature of work. Um, I think the, you know, I think the right way to approach this, you have to approach it with scenarios because we won't know key factor. What is economic growth going to look like when we come out of this? Is it going to be feeble because of the weaknesses and the wounds in the economy? Or is it going to be vibrant? And I always think that after, before the end of World War II, great Nobel winning economists like Paul Samuelson thought we'd have another depression after World War II. Instead, you had a real upsurge in the economy. And I think that's what's going to happen when we come out of this uh, is a similar question. And that, I think, will affect the pattern of, of oil demand. One theme, Dan, that cuts across the book is um, innovation. Thanks, Otto. Um, and, um, and, and it's fascinating because in some cases, it's based on an individual who came up with the idea of a shipping container. In other cases, it's based on somebody's stubbornness that they just refuse to say no. And in other cases, it's based on millions, billions of dollars of research and development. And as you look at all of those different stories, what, what do you come away with about drivers of innovation that impresses you as you've been studying this theme over the course of years? Well, well, I guess it's, it's maybe a little contradictory. On the one hand, it's the force of individual willpower. And you take, uh, I think for the shipping, you're referring to the container revolution, which really enabled globalization, the container revolution in shipping. And it was one guy, Malcolm McLean, who was trying to figure out how to get his uh, cargoes more cheaply from the East Coast to Texas and said, well, let's put them on ships. Uh, or, of course, the classic example is George Mitchell, who, uh, you know, had a problem. He needed a, he had a contract to supply 10% of Chicago's natural gas. And he was, his fields were running down and he became obsessed with the fact that fracking would work, you know, and it took about 15 or 16 years. And if he hadn't dominated his company, you know, they would have cut the budgets and said, this doesn't make sense. Let's call it quits. And so, you know, so that's the role of, of individuals. At the same time, you realize that, you know, innovation is a complex process that involves ecosystems of, of researchers, of, uh, of people who then have ideas to carry things to the market. Uh, and, you know, as, you know, what the U.S. has is this incredible ecosystem for energy, which is a six and a half billion dollars in basic science that the Department of Energy spends. And then, and 70 national labs. And then you have universities, research institutes, you have big companies, you have startups, a culture. So all out of all of that, you get a lot of innovation too. And I think it's, you know, it's often when kind of things are pulled together. I mean, fracking was really two technologies, uh, you know, hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling that were yoked together. And that was not till 2003 that you could kind of prove that that worked. So, you know, there's not a single recipe for it. it does stand out that 
people with iron determination can play a very important role. At the same time, it's the whole body of technology and the ability to be flexible and to take chances and to just go down avenues that people want to go down that, that added up. And there's that question too, you know, how do you innovate in, in larger companies? Uh, you know, how do you create the culture that allows that to happen? So I think kind of innovation and energy is very much on the table because one of the things that we concluded the study we did with Ernie Moniz is that the technologies that people want for, you know, 2050 are not there yet. And that's going to take new tech, additional technologies to get there. You mentioned hydrogen. Another would be carbon capture. It's just hard to see how you do this whole thing without significant uh, economic competitive carbon capture. And it's still early days for that. Dan, there is a sort of very important technical question about your book, which must be answered, which is that uh, it seems the audio version of your book is not available outside of the U.S. Uh, this question is from the U.K. Can you tell uh, our audience how do they get their audio version if they're not on the U.S.? Yes, well, I will, uh, the way they'll get it is I will call Penguin in London when this call is over and ask them that there is uh, people on the line right now who are waiting for the audible version and uh, will, uh, you know, and that should be easy because actually it's two different branches of Penguin that are publishing the book, one in North America, the other in London, which has the responsibility for the whole world. I think I think that's a remedial uh, problem. I was struck that on an Amazon uh in the U.S., the book has been bestseller in energy. In uh, Amazon UK, it's a bestseller in geopolitics, which uh, which struck me as uh, reflecting the two the two parts of the book. But I'll, yes. Uh, to, that, to that viewer, um, I will take this as a personal mission to make sure you. Okay. Uh, thank you. Then uh, before we before we kind of uh, you know wrap and all, uh, can we talk a little bit about investors? Because again, questions around. You know, the new map uh, and, and will the next map be driven by investors uh, and consumers more than by politicians and governments, uh, you know, because of how they are investing and where they're going to put the money or not put the money for that matter? Well, I think ESG, uh, environment, social governance, I think over the last year or two has become a much bigger focus for investors. I think there's pressure on them. Uh, the EU uh, has rules that it's going to pressure investors in that degree. You know, the market side of IHS market, well, the whole company, I mean, we have a focus. We created an ESG reporting repository and uh, are going to continue to do more in that. So I think ESG is very powerful, uh, increasingly powerful, and is having an impact on company strategies because they're saying, going back Paris, how does your strategy comport with uh, with uh, the Paris 2050 goals? And so I think that um, that's much on the minds of uh, of energy companies, how they relate and interact with uh, this kind of rising focus on uh, ESG. Okay, Carlos. Uh, Dan, just building on that, um, if you could take that connection a little bit back even further to, to the shale revolution, because 
it gets connected back to the topic of innovation as well. Um, money helps. And uh, in 2015, we saw Wall Street pour in $50 billion to support the unconventional sector in the United States. And we've seen a massive shift in that. And ESG is one part of that. But what does that tell us about the potential for innovation and change going into the future, given these changes that are happening with investment in the energy sector? So are you, Carlos, you thinking that in terms of shale or more broadly? Um, shale is one piece of it, but what we've also seen is that energy as a portion of the standard core 500 more broadly has really gone down and resources are going to IT and pharma and, and it starts to ask, force us to ask questions. What does it mean about investment in energy and innovation and what it could, what impact it could have as we go forward? I think that, uh, if, if we first look at the shale companies, I think they are basically needing and have to de- develop a new social contract with investors about returns. So I think for investors, it's two things. It's returns and it's ESG. Uh, but I think that uh, that question of uh, where are the investors going to be in the future, availability of capital, uh, is a question for the industry. Short term, we can see it's quite striking how much companies have cut back their spending this year. Uh, the major companies have cut back by about 30% from what they were thinking at the beginning of the year. Uh, the big upstream companies in the U.S. by about 50%. Uh, so that raises a question, too, about what the supply picture will look like three or four years from now. But I think that relationship with investors, dividends, returns are going to be very important. I think that that the ESG considerations will be there, but I think for investors, returns uh, will be there too. Um, um, you know, if, if, if these companies are cheap now and are able to, uh, you know, be more profitable and so forth, then investors will come back to it. So I think it's a, but it's a combination of the two. And it is quite dramatic to see energy of like three or 4% of the S&P and tech 15 or 16%. It tells you how the world has changed. It also tells you what companies have done really well out of, uh, in this, uh, terrible COVID environment and which companies have not. And of course, uh, with what's happened with oil prices, certainly true of, of energy companies. Dan, uh, I have a couple of questions, uh, you know, before we wrap. So one is around, you touched on Biden and, you know, the campaign. How do you see the map of the U.S. changing, you know, post the presidential election? Uh, well, I think a tool, one question will be who wins. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and when we know that, uh, I have, some concern that uh, it's possible that political institutions in the United States will be tested in a way that they haven't been tested since the 1930s. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but, you know, you can see, you know, just the uncertainty about voting and everything, and uh, particularly if it's a close election. Um, you know, I think uh, Biden has laid out his plan in his $2 trillion climate plan uh, which is really meant to, you know, it's more akin, much more akin to what Europe's doing, big focus on climate. And I think is, uh, you know, tells you the direction he'll go. 
question. I think, like all campaigns, there are right now many different elements in it, you know, all vying for the attention, all vying for the words that the candidate speaks. And we'll really see afterwards, uh, after he's, if he's elected, uh, how the appointments go, what, what it is. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, he will, certainly will push ahead on a, a strong climate agenda. But at the same time, I think we recognize the oil and gas industry is a big industry before the, um, COVID. It was over 12 million people, uh, in the industry. Uh, and its economic contribution is quite large. And I think, uh, he, remember he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He'll recognize the foreign nations aspect of it as well. So I think it will be kind of a, a mixed picture. Certainly there'll be more focus on, uh, regulation than, than is currently the case. And, um, you know, so kind of the, the correlation of forces will, will change, but I think it will be kind of going down, uh, two paths. But the big focus is on, you know, will be on the climate agenda and spending money on that. Yeah. So, so, uh, my, my final question here, which goes back to where we started because you said that the books, you don't finish the books that are taken away from you. Now it so happened that you were finishing the book and COVID happened and uh, you wrote this last chapter called The Disrupted Future in which you kind of said that, um, you know, what will happen because of COVID-19. So do you think the uh, energy transition and the pace of it, and in general, broadly, the, the world of energy, uh, are we in a very different world now? And since you wrote the book or since you sent the book to the publisher to now, it's been a few months. Have, have your thoughts changed on that? It's, it's only actually, it's only two months. Normally you finish your book nine months before publication. This yes. is two months. I think Penguin was getting a little, uh, fed up with me or desperate, but they just took it away finally. You know, the, the, the decisive point for a book is that we've got to do the index. And if you change the pages, we can't do the index. So they took it away and then they did a tremendous job in terms of uh, turning it around with everybody actually working at home. Um, you know, Carlos very graciously mentioned the other books that I've done. And that's why, you know, I really only afterwards that I realized that they all flowed into this and particularly the book, Carlos, that you mentioned commanding heights, which was about globalization about uh, confidence in markets and that shift. And the pendulum has shifted back on markets, but also, um, you know, in terms of world order, um, you know, we see it happening with, you know, technology between the U.S. and China. We see other examples of it. And here are the two most eco- important economies in the world uh, that, you know, are more integrated than people recognize, but where the stresses in the relationship are shifting. I, in the book, I talk about a WTO consensus going back to the World Trade Organization breaking down. And now the word, I probably key words are sort of strategic competitors, uh, are there even though they're connected. And my very first book was on the origins of the Cold War and didn't expect to write another book on or, you know, origins of new Cold Wars. I'm not saying we're there now, but you certainly can see the risk of that happening. But it's much more complicated because the Soviet Union was not a big factor in the world economy. U.S. and China are so connected. Uh, and they both are so embedded in the global economy. And, you know, I hear from other countries, you guys here too, saying, 
we don't want to have to choose between U.S. and China and getting worried about that. And I think for companies, too, it's going to be more challenging operating in a world that's more fragmented, where globalization still exists, but it's a more difficult uh, and rocky uh, globalization uh, in terms of investment. And we see it with the tech companies. Uh, we, I don't think we see it yet in energy, uh, but I think that same kind of risk is there. Uh, so that's the, you know, the broad question. I think the question that also what fragmentation means is, well, what does that mean to, what does protectionism mean for economic growth? Uh, you know, what does it break down of a, of a global trading system not working as well? If it's lower growth, that's not good news for energy, whether you're talking about our existing energy infrastructure, oil and gas and so forth, or new energies. Just if you don't, if you don't, economic growth is a very important, I think, determinant for supporting uh, uh, and the whole energy industry, where we are today and where people want to go by 2050. And so I think that you have to, you can't separate what's happening geopolitically right now uh, and the kind of sense of competition, great power rivalry. Um, there are a lot of risks there. And the, the question I ask people who are involved in these issues, well, where's it going? How, and kind of people know where it is now, but where it's going is something that we all really need to focus about and think about. Uh, so before I hand it over to Carlos, I should just clarify, because now we are having a debate about Kindle versus audio. So they are, you should be very pleased to know that there are lots of Kindle fans. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I like the paper. <laughs> anyway, over to you. Over to I would, I would just say, I would just say before Carlos, it would be fascinating for me to do a survey to see how many people buy a book in hardcover, like up here on the shelf. Uh, how many read it on Kindle? How many read it on, uh, or listen to it on audiobooks? Multiple platforms. And, uh, I mean, it's fascinating to see, but, um, uh, you know, one thing that's been good for audiobooks is commuting and the people are commuting less. I wonder what that does, but, but at least that people have, have their Kindle. That's good to know. Thank you. Carlos. Dan, I, I feel like we could keep going on forever because there are, are so many issues, so many stories. And one of the things that's fascinating about the book is that you tell stories that are meaningful, but that you connect them to things that happen broadly and in, that have systemic meaning and implication. Um, sometimes I have to laugh when I listen to you because one of your reviewers says, you have to read this book for the statistics. And so here you proved yourself again. I'd love to know what people think about Kindle versus the iBook. And you know, that drive for understanding based on data. And another reviewer says, you know, there's some pretty hard-nosed analytics in here that is depressing. But sometimes wisdom is depressing. And, and indeed, there, there's that aspect as well. But at the end, you also give us a sense of optimism and possibility and potential. So let's give you the last word, Dan, and say something to us about that aspect of the potential that you see and what drives you to keep, to keep getting such motivation and excitement from an understanding of the sector and these issues and how they accept, how they interact with the world of politics. Well, Thank you, uh, Carlos. And I think, you know, it is true that, you know, I'm, I try to be realistic 
uh, in the book. But, you know, by nature, I'm an optimistic person and uh, believe that problems can be solved, maybe not overnight, but that, you know, if you understand them and you focus on them. And what I really tried to do in this book was, you know, provide a framework for this changing energy world, the changing geopolitical world. That's what the map is. Uh, and at the same time, you know, kind of point out what does need work, what does need focus, what can be addressed uh, to get to better outcomes. And, you know, I, I suppose, you know, I, I suppose in a way that's what the book is, one of the things the book is really meant to carry forward, that there are lots of things that can be done and need to be done that all add up together to lead to better outcomes uh, rather than worse outcomes. And uh, you know, I think at the time of great change, with a lot of things being disrupted from globalization to, you know, the future of energy, global economy, pandemic, uh, you need a you need a map, you need a framework, and that's what I've tried to uh, do in the book. And um, and uh, you know, I end on the line that you know there'll be surprises if you think of all the surprises since 2000. There have been a lot of them, but clearly, two things that will be constant is climate is an issue for the energy industry and for the globe, and also, unfortunately, uh, the clash of nations. We need to be realistic about it and find ways to manage it so that it doesn't become something, you know, worse than it is today. So that's what I've tried to do in the book. And mix in with it, I have to say, as you've noted, Carlos, and I feel a lot of good stories that really uh, illuminate the world that we're in today and the world that we're headed towards along the new map. Dan, we'll continue this conversation at Sierra Week. Right. Yes. Uh, we will be holding Sierra Week uh, 2021 uh, in the beginning of March, of course, in 2021. And the theme of the conference is the new map. And uh, we'll look at the map and all the different directions and everything from markets and geopolitics to technology, of course, climate, innovation, energy transition. All of that will be on the table at uh, Sierra Week uh, 2021. So with that, I think we are coming to an end. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, and uh, thank you for all the questions. Look forward to seeing you all uh, at Sierra Week 2021 at Sunset. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And Carlos and Atul, uh, great conversation. And two people, I have to say, who are very important uh, in his, as I was writing this book and learned a lot from them. So thank you to them. And thank you to all of you who joined us today. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sarahweek.com.